Today, we're going to talk about Oregon's drug decriminalization and what we know so far from this, you know, early days of that experiment. Then we're going to talk about the post-affirmative action backlash against corporate diversity efforts. And then we will shift to new data that shows that we're more polarized than ever and getting more polarized at a faster rate than we ever have before. And then finally, we're going to talk about criminals who built their own language learning models, basically adopting things like ChatGPT and BARD to commit some crimes. And so we're going to talk about whether that's a truth that threat to you. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schott. Ricky, I've got a lot of feedback from last week's episode or last earlier week episode about the Hunter Biden stuff. I think people like it when we debate is what I hear. That's what I've heard. It made me go back and listen to the Snowden debate as well. I think that's I think the Snowden debate was a little more spirited. But yeah, these are, I think, are, are definitely it's a charitable our top way of putting two. it. Yeah. Well, listeners, send in voicemails or tweet at us if you have topics that you think we should cover. I've noticed, I was, just, I was talking to Ricky offline, is that I made a, a side comment about Ozempic six months ago, and Ricky continues to hammer it home for me. <laughs> it was and, not and a side I don't comment. Go, I don't go, I, I still characterize comment. it as a side comment, but I don't go on Twitter very often, but I went on Twitter yesterday, and there's like a whole thread about Ozempic where people I don't know are mentioning me. And Ricky, I blame you for that. Um, great transition here. Speaking of drugs, <laughs> uh, Ricky, what's happening in Very Oregon? Slick. So a while back, we talked about um, Oregon's Measure 110, uh, which- Wait a minute, 16- Oregon? Uh, Explain Oregon? what's going on here. Where, is that where, how they say it in Jersey? We saw Oregon. What do you say? Oregon? Oregon? No, Oregon. Yeah. Florida? We'll have to, we'll have to have the, I say the, Florida the, too. The people, from that state, the people from that state are going to have to weigh in. All right, sorry, keep going. 60% of voters there approved ballot measure 110 two and a half years ago, which made the penalty for personal use of fentanyl and meth just a $100 ticket. And it could be waived entirely if you agreed to do a health assessment. And the New York Times did, to their credit, an article that I didn't really expect from them um, called Scenes from a City That Only Hands Out Tickets for Using Fentanyl following up on where this decriminalization effort is now that we're nearing three years since. And the subheader of this is life has changed for most everyone in the city of Portland. I would highly recommend going to the Times and looking at the photos that they, you know, this is really a visual article, but it's harrowing some of the anecdotes and and the people that they profile. And the effect has been that open air drug use has skyrocketed, that overdose rates have grown, that tent cities are springing up, that there's wait lists are growing and growing for treatment. And they go through a series of profiles of a barista who, you know, had to dodge a a woman giving oral sex for drugs on her way to work, a bike police officer who's patrolling with Narcan and had to give it to the same person multiple times um, just in the day that they were following him. People who who are living on the streets who just believe that drugs are legal and not decriminalized a tent city resident who's battling addiction and, and regularly gets beaten up in altercations. Like it's just a really, really grim profile. And I think an important check in on this social experiment that's unfolding there. Yeah. And, and one key piece of data here. So um, since it passed 110 passed a couple of years ago and that passed with nearly 60% of the vote, 
Uh, today, 63% of Oregonians or Oregonians, as we would say, I guess maybe Oregon, I don't know. Uh, they support bringing back criminal penalties for drug possession. So basically the public opinion has flipped. And the question is why? Is it is the program not working? My sense, and, and again, I agree with you, this New York Times article is really, really good. Shout out to Jordan Gill, who's the photographer for it. Jen Hoffman, who wrote the article. There's another article in the OBP uh, by Jonathan Levinson from June that I think does a really good job of getting to what I think is going on here. And he talks about how only 13 weeks elapsed between Oregon voters passing ballot measure 110 in November 2010, and then the law going to an effect February 1st, 2021. And to quote uh, Levinson, quote, it happened so fast, service providers say the system meant to replace arrest and jail were nowhere near ready to assume their increased responsibilities, end quote. And so if you look at this article and the New York Times article, what you hear are people who run these in-service providers who provide, who are supposed to provide the safety net alternatives to what the probation and jail system used to do. And uh, they just weren't ready for it. And my sense here is, I think that has a lot to do with this. And and I think if that's right, I hope they don't just pull the whole thing back and go back to the way things were. I hope they, you know, fully fund, you know, the support for people who are struggling with drug addiction and funnel more people into these programs so there aren't long waiting lists, so there actually is aggressive outreach, and then gauge how this is going instead of like the pendulum swinging all the way back to where the system before, to be clear, was throwing people in jail and basically hiding them <laughs> in society, which is not a great system either. So I don't know. I just hope it doesn't go all the way back to the way things were. Yeah. I don't know though. I, I feel like if open air drug use is going up and overdose rates are going up, then the net effect of this has been negative regardless of, of whether they were able to facilitate all the treatment that they promised. Like, I think that there's a, this is an issue that I really struggle with because it just, it definitely runs up against the limitations of my libertarianism for sure. But I think there's a utopianism in believing that, that the government in any world can help someone with something as devastating as drug addiction, especially people with no network to support them, which, I mean, these people are living on the streets and and the, the idea that the government can get them on the street and narrow, I I don't know. And the fact that people think- But then that what, should we be people, arresting people? But then the thing is like, from a libertarian perspective, forget trespassing, forget stealing, right? The things that are associated with drug use. Like just the drug use. If I walk down the street uh, and I see Open somebody- Open air drug use, I, yeah. Way, I think that that should be illegal. For the harm reduction for the rest of of society. I mean, I see it all the time in New York, all of a sudden. I mean, you used to see it from time to time. Now you see it everywhere. For the safety of everyone else, for the sake of living in a civil society where you're not like crawling around needles and walking past people shooting up in broad daylight. I, yeah, I think that should be criminalized. But I think like, obviously there could be a law against uh, disposing of needles or you know, getting people in close contact with an unsafe need, whatever. Like, you know, it's not like diabetics, for example, it's illegal to shoot, you know, shoot up insulin, right? Like there can be laws around unsafe disposal of needles, no, et cetera. There could be laws it's against- It's like, I don't want to see it either. I don't want people to yeah, feel- Yeah, but why is that a crime? I don't want to see a lot of things. You know, I don't like seeing people, you know- I, I don't know. I, I mean, some people don't like other people making out on the street. Some people don't like people, you know, like Ravi. You can't. You know, it's illegal going to drink. Down the street. It's illegal to drink beer on the street. Like this isn't so radical to say you shouldn't be able to shoot. But up I don't think that it should be illegal. Street. Did you? You want people? Okay, 
you think it should be you, yet again this, we're, we're, we're more libertarian the, it's like are we gonna go back to the ravi thinks that you should be able to pee and defecate everywhere in public too that's different though that's different but you, you, that's different because <laughs> that actually is that. something you like if you yeah but that's totally separate and for listeners i don't I, this more complicated than that there was a point about our, our need to expand public bathrooms but the point about this is like maybe where i'm more libertarian again is it, like a good example uh, is the the drinking in public, right? Well, who are we helping when somebody has to put a paper bag over a beer? We all know what's in that paper bag. Like what? Like how is that helping anybody uh, in society? And let's say that they you were don't drinking want a drunk beer. People Why is that like harmful? Spilling out of bars and drinking out on sidewalks and stuff. Like I think that's actually a legitimate safety thing. But you know, on the libertarian scorecard, I'm not an anarchist, and I would just like to draw a line in the sand and say that in in the world that Ricky governs, you can't piss on the street, you can't shoot up on the street, and you can't defecate everywhere. And in the world that Ravi governs, you know, there you can do all those things, but then well, let me, vax okay, mandates, well, let me, you can't have your guns. Okay. You know, there's uh, now in my world we have adequate public restrooms and then we can enforce laws against peeing on the street. But in a world where you have like two bathrooms in the entire city of New York City and then, you know, businesses are refusing people who have to use the restroom and then we're arresting people for going to the bathroom. Then that to me, that's on the government. Now, in my world, we just have adequate public restrooms. And yes, then we enforce uh, laws against going to the bathroom in the street. But this is not that segment. This segment is about, well, like, are we are we jailing people? Because you, you said about harm reduction, but I thought you also said the government can't really solve this problem. So like from my, from overdose my perspective, overdose rates is, have gone about, up. How did this solve anything? Like if overdose rates are going up, what did decriminalizing it do? Well, okay. Well, there's two things. One is like, I just want to close the book on my point about what is driving the criminality of this. Because I think this is really central, which is, are we criminalizing the use itself and us seeing it? At which point I'm against that. Just, like if, just because something offends our sensibilities doesn't mean it should be illegal. Are we criminalizing it because it's in the best interest of the people taking the drugs and we think it'll it'll be more effective for them? Well, then, okay, then we have a conversation about what's more effective or not. My point about all this is we don't have enough data to know this is effective because they didn't actually prepare for the law that they passed. They didn't beef up the services like they said that they would. So all we have right now is replacing one flawed system with almost no system after that, which is what seems to have happened on the ground here. And what I would love to see is for them, and it seems like some of the money now is starting to flow to services, expand the services, actually enforce the laws that are related to drug use that get to the kinds of behavior that infringe on people's safety, public spaces, et cetera. So trespassing, criminality, and you know, any kind of theft, anything like that, et cetera. Like get to that kind of stuff. You know, any of the lewd behavior that like, like let's say, like, you know, like anything else that people do that like might degrade the quality of life that we, you know, we can go through and say, well, what's an acceptable thing to outlaw, et cetera. Like outlaw all that kind of stuff. Keep the drug use the way it is in the proposition. Actually adequately staff up the way that you intended to and funnel people into these services. And then let's say whether it works or not. And if the data says it doesn't work, then pull the program back. Yeah, I think that's a real long-term project. And I mean, especially in the post-pandemic era where people can afford, especially those like wealthier people can afford to work remotely or do the six months in a day situation. I think taxpayers are major taxpayers that are funding these sorts of programs are going to flee 
these sorts of cities because the quality of life needs to degrade every single time this decriminalization effort happens. Like, they, I, they also I don't know fund the prisons. Financially, I don't think it's going to be a financially... Yeah, but I'm saying there's... If people are living in cities where they have to dodge needles and w- look at open air drug use and wealthy people can afford to go elsewhere, I think there's going to be a mass exodus. We saw it in San Francisco of areas like this. And I think that that's the, the taxpayers are going to <laughs> withdraw from things like that. And you're making an even more expensive system by, I don't know. I just, I think there's better solutions to this. I, I don't think this is it. Yeah, but I think part of the problem is like the U.S. has the the sixth largest incarceration rate in the world, and this is after some decriminalization efforts. We're throwing people in prison right now for nonviolent offenses at rates that are both expensive, I think, immoral, and also are not really doing a great job of actually stopping the addiction. We're just hiding the addiction, and so what I would like to see is more experimentation like this around, okay, what works? And and we should put in the show notes this episode we did a while back about safe injection sites because each one of these elements, it's a tough problem when we should get at them. So more safe in- injection sites because safe means safe for the person taking it, but also means safe for the rest of society so that the drugs aren't everywhere. Two is like then also enforce everything else around those needles, make sure that they're disposed of properly and criminalize that. It's just as easy to criminalize unsafe um, discarding of a needle than it is to criminalize the possession of it. If people are throwing it away improperly, you catch them throwing it away improperly, et cetera, you could arrest them and yeah, have the same kind of like penalties as you had for the you know possession of the drug in the past, et cetera, whatever. And then like spaces, like there's nothing to preclude you from saying we should have parks uh, and the parks, you know, you can't live in the park. You can't set up tent cities in the middle of the street. You can't, whatever, like whatever it is that we're worried about, then uh, you can outlaw those things. You can't have sex in the streets, whatever. Like these are all things like that people can debate. They can argue about it. You can criminalize the activity associated with it. You could beef up, like let's say there's a rash of robberies associated with increased concentration of drug users. You can beef up the penalties and enforcement on those robberies. Like I just think that there are other ways to get around some of this stuff than just saying, hey, like you have this pathology of drug use. Let's use one tool in our toolbox, which is putting you in prison, which is what we also do for child molesters and say like, this is this is the solution to this. I, I just am not comfortable with that. And we've also seen what that does. What it means is like, we're we're in line with like some of the most, the biggest autocracies in the world in terms of our prison rate, because we can't distinguish between different types of people and pathologies in our society. My last point on this is I don't disagree with that. My solution that I would prefer to see is an investment in treatment in within the prison system and and rehabilitation within the prison system. I don't think that it needs to necessarily be punitive. It can be more restorative, but I do think that's the place and setting to do this and not just like, oh, show up to your like appointment or comment. Like these are not people who oftentimes are able to help themselves and able to buy into this program in the way that I think the assumption sometimes is when it's just, you know, show up and and do this drug test or, or do like, I don't know. I just, I'd rather see it within the prison system. I think at a certain point, if somebody has devolved to the point where they're engaging in open air drug use, where they're engaging in other criminal activity, I think that there's a point where we say, okay, let's, we can divide them out. They don't have to be in with sex offenders. That it can they can be treated differently within that system. 
Yeah, I think I, there's a version of the prison system I would be more comfortable with, but the one that we have today is an unsafe prison system by and large, especially in certain in some states, it's it's outright atrocious. It's unsafe. People are subject to uh, repeated violence, sexual violence. Uh, there's also tons of drug use in the prisons itself. So you want to bring all that stuff out onto the public? Like the people are like a lot of this drug use in public is facilitating sexual violence and abuse and people engaging in extreme violence against each other and dealers. And like, that's, I mean, it's happening now on the streets. But we have laws against that. Like that's my thing is like, what we're saying is you have a problem. You have a drug addiction. We're going to put you in a place that we know is unsafe. That's going to subject you to other crimes and that's somehow going to solve the problem. Like, yes, like there's a utopian version of the prison that I think could solve this. And I'm sure there's certain countries that do it really well. We're, we don't happen to live in one of them. We live in a country that sends people in. My brother's a prison guard. I, I hear these stories all the time. It's like, these places are outright human rights disasters. And to me, at a certain point, the crime is the prison. <laughs> you know, the fact that we're sending people to these places and we can't ensure their safety is a is a complete moral failing of our country. And it makes me particularly uncomfortable about sending people who are nonviolent to those prisons when there are other potential solutions at our disposal. It's one thing if you commit a nonviolent offense and you like embezzle funds, right? Yeah. Send that person to prison. But if you're like, it's all self-harm mostly, right? And we haven't accused you of any other crime. You haven't done anything else. Like I, I would hope we could find alternatives to that. We've been talking a ton about the, you know, the pre and now post affirmative action decision world and what would happen if uh, we start training our gaze on the private sector. And in the Wall Street Journal, there was a really, really comprehensive article by Theo Francis and Lauren Weber that looks at efforts to challenge corporate diversity efforts. And I, I briefly mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but there's this provision of the Civil Rights Act called Title VII, which bans workplace discrimination. And uh, although the recent affirmative action decision did not address private sector discrimination in the workplace, it did uh, have a concurring opinion by Neil Gorsuch, which basically said that there's a materially identical language on discrimination in laws governing employment as there are in higher education. So he's referring to, among other things, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And what's happening now, and this article does a really good job of painting it, is that the laws on the books and the offices set up to deal with civil rights complaints, which have traditionally been utilized by people trying to increase diversity and kind of, I think, are more like, I would say, liberal phenomena, uh, are now being used by conservatives challenging discrimination in the workplace. So things like the um, the office of, uh, what do you call it? The office of equal opportunity, equal opportunity commission. Uh, and every city and state has, I've had some some dealings with these people. Like they have, the, every city and state has like a equal opportunity commission type thing where like if you feel like you've been subject to discrimination, you can lodge a complaint. And usually it's people saying, I was X, I, I'm Indian and somebody discriminated because I'm Indian. But you're seeing an increasing amount of these complaints being lobbed on behalf of white people saying they've been discriminated because they're white or they're Asian. And some big corporations are in the crosshairs and some of them have been. And just to color this a little bit more, Edward Bloom, who is the legal strategist that was behind the Students for Fair Admissions in the affirmative action case that went to the Supreme Court, 
also just made a nonprofit that's now targeting this. So this is definitely like a larger lifetime mission of Bloom. I've spoken to him and he's previously... um, He sued before the affirmative action case with the Asian students um, on behalf of a student. I think it was the University of Texas, a white student in the past, a white woman who said that basically made the same case as the Asian American students, but um, from the white perspective. So he's he's now broadening his scope. He's been remarkably successful in getting cases to the Supreme Court. I imagine that that's what his ultimate goal is here. But definitely in anticipation of that fact, um, companies are already reconsidering. They're talking to their lawyers. Comcast um, has settled after giving minority businesses specific grants. Um, basically under this sort of framework. So that's setting a precedent. Amazon was sued over a $10,000 bonus that they gave to Black and Latino-owned delivery service contractors. Starbucks directors and executives have been sued for diversity policies. So I think that the floodgates are opened up. It's just a matter of time before this becomes the next frontier. And I wonder, given how earth-shattering the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action in colleges has been, whether you know, companies are just going to get ahead of this and just fix this now or do what colleges are doing, which is basically like pretending that they're not doing the same thing, but doing the same thing by asking different essay questions and stuff. So I think that there's going to be these, like companies are not going to be as overt as they have been, even if they're going to end up doing the exact same thing in the end. Yeah. I actually had a chance to talk to Bloom too during, you know, back in the fall uh, on the affirmative action stuff. And this is where he and I probably depart a little bit I mean, it's not the only area where we depart, but we had a cordial conversation because I think we we saw some of the same things in that Supreme Court case on the Asian Americans. But we knew, like in that conversation, it was clear that his vision for the future and vision of people like me who were skeptical of Harvard, skeptical of the way affirmative action is being implemented, we we don't necessarily have the same vision for the future. And it became clear in that conversation. And I think this is where I'm starting to get uncomfortable, be in part because and this is what Shaw, David Shaw from University of North Carolina, who used to be the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, somebody we've talked about to before about affirmative action. He talked about how like in the original affirmative action decisions, it was originally about societal discrimination. Then it became about diversity because diversity became about the free speech rights of the university itself. And the diversity rationale lasted all the way up until this recent case. But societal discrimination hasn't been really allowed to, to be used as a justification since the Baki decision in the late 70s. And this is why it's hard to engage with these debates because what's left on the books by and large are corporations saying that they want a diverse workforce because it is in their interest to have a diverse workforce because that makes for a better workforce. Which is, to me, I'm like, that's not what this debate was originally about. And Shaw felt the same way in the conversation. was you saying, like, this should be about, a, and it should start with our, our country's historic and horrendous treatment of black people, the enslavement of black people, the inability to get reconstruction rights, the uh, repeated state-sanctioned violence against black Americans throughout the country, the disenfranchisement and the legacy of that today and trying to undo that. And that we should make room in our law to allow for efforts to Make that right, because I think what separates different people on the political spectrum is whether you think enough time has passed or not between when those wrongs originated and where we are today. And some people will argue that the the wrongs continue to this day. And that is a debate that we will always have. 
Now, I happen to be in the camp of saying it's too early to stop trying to solve that problem because it was such a horrendous thing to do and the consequences of it live on till this day. That's a debate people can have. The problem is nowhere and anywhere in these conversations does that stuff show up because of the weird way that the, the law has evolved and the way these corporations articulate their policies. And so I'm left wanting a world where we continue to write our historic discrimination and discrimination feels like a weak word when you're talking about enslaving people. But then I, there's just not an answer. It's like, it's nowhere anywhere in here. So I, I don't know. I, I feel kind of helpless when I read these types of articles. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, but the question is like, is the responsibility to write those wrongs in the hands of these corporations that does a $10,000 bonus given to people based on their skin color actually meaningfully address that wrong or does that just create more discrimination in the end which to me i mean i feel like it's a it's a misplaced effort it's oh, that's bizarre to me the concept that amazon's going to pay you more because of the color of your skin is just bizarre to me like regardless of are you a first generation immigrant that has no inheritance of the history of slavery or are you a white person from appalachia like i do think there is a more complex conversation 100% to be had about the historical wrongs in society, but whether these private companies very blatantly making choices and giving preferences to people on an immutable characteristic is a solution to that is just incontrovertibly like, no, that's not a solution in my mind. Yeah, but the problem is it's like we committed so many wrongs as a country, right? And the we meaning the, the country, obviously not the people alive today. I'm a big believer in it. It might not be your fault, but it's your responsibility. And I think we always talk about as Americans what, we're, what our rights are and what we are supposed to be given, but we don't talk enough about what our responsibilities are. And in this case, the country is what it is because of many of the great things, but also some of the terrible things. And actually some of the great things that exist today are the result of exploitation. And one of the reasons why we're as economically powerful as we are is because we had a combination of industrialism and agrarian capitalism. And the agrarian capitalism was very much about the exploitation of people based on the race. And it's also direct ties. Like J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, has admitted that between 1831 and 1865, their predecessor banks that are now J.P. Morgan accepted slaves as collateral on loans, thousands and thousands of them. Uh, and you can go through it, Aetna. You go through all these companies today. Okay, like, so that then why today. don't those company, like, why don't the executives of those companies donate to charities that uplift inner city communities or something like that? That's not enough. Think about what we're talking about: uplift okay, communities. Okay, so then versus- Amazon, like Amazon, is giving a ten thousand dollar bonus to a Nigerian immigrant because their skin color and they're running a, a, a delivery service and they're a contractor and and that like how does it. I don't know. I'm just not convinced. Well, that that's okay. Fixing this it. is where, I mean, you pick a good example, right? Because it's like, I, and I had a good conversation with Chris Stewart about this because I was like, well, because he brought up societal discrimination. And I was like, well, then how does that, or at least historic slavery, right? And I was like, well, then do you support affirmative action for Mexicans? Because that's a different story. Like the Asian American story is different than the Mexican story, than the Nigerian immigrant to the about women? Uh, descendant of slaves um, and women. Yep. And I think, and what he said was fascinating. He was like, I actually am like very focused on affirmative action for descendants of slaves. And that's where this thing gets so muddy is like, where I, I don't have the answer is how do you answer that question today? And it is complicated. And, and I do think like, like essentializing people on the basis of their race 
can lead to some horrible consequences, including like what happened at Harvard with the Asian Americans. But I guess my point at the end of this is what's going on in these corporations to me, I don't, I don't buy that they're doing it for the right reasons. I don't even buy that they're in any way even trying to track how it, it in any way addresses our historic discrimination and subjugation of black Americans. I don't, I don't have any reason to think that anything they're doing is in any way tied to that, which is why I'm, I'm not like crazy up in arms about what's going on here. But at the same time, I'm deeply concerned that the movement just seems to be away from any reckoning with that past and that there's this, this sense that, all right, well, we've done what we could. We tried a bunch of stuff. Let's move on. I'm not comfortable with that either. And it's one of the reasons why I started a school in North Nashville, where it has the highest incarceration rate of black males in the country. I didn't, I didn't pick North Nashville by accident. I went down there particularly because that concentration of black Americans in North Nashville is not accidental. Yeah, but Ravi, like no one's saying that you can't solve or attempt to to remedy those issues by doing something like that. They're just saying you can't say, okay, now I have my school in North Nashville and I'm not going to let white people in it because they didn't have this same history or whatever. Like no, there are you. so and it's you're not shutting down the conversation. Like there's I think there's definitely people who are more extreme on this front, but I don't think short-circuiting practices that are specifically penalizing someone on the basis of race or uplifting someone on the basis of race means that we can't as a society address it in a ton of other ways, including opening schools in areas that are disproportionately minority and including emphasizing socioeconomic diversity, which is something that would disproportionately benefit people of color because of the history of racial discrimination. Like, I just don't think that that it's a black and white, like, oh, if this oh, this gets overturned, then we just say, oh, everything's fine now and we can't talk about it anymore. We can still talk about it and there's still plenty of ways to address those problems. Well, yeah, yeah. And I think like, it's, it's, it's such a good example, right? Like, look, would I, would I fight for the ability to exclude whites? No, of course not. Um, and yes, I had, I had the ability to go down to North Nashville to serve kids. I, I just want a more collective civic effort, right? Like it doesn't have to be the government. It doesn't have to be anybody forcing anybody to yeah, do anything. I just don't want people to get uh, I just, paid I, for their skin color. I think that's bizarre. I also don't want people to get paid for being a woman and getting a bonus over a man for that exact reason. Like, I just think that's discriminatory. It should just be are you good at your job? <laughs> yeah, but this is where I I want us then to say, all right, if nobody's forced to do anything, we need to we need to commit to each other, or at least nobody needs to do anything. I would ask people to commit to continue the fight, right? And like to me, what what's really depressing about this debate, and and one of the reasons why I really hated the affirmative action debate, is and and this is not the fault of any one person. But the way it evolved, it became about elite emissions. It became about like the richest of the rich of this or that or whatever. And the corporation is very similar. Now, when I think about my kids in North Nashville, that is a very destitute situation. Kids are clearly disadvantaged because of the history. They have huge obstacles. They need help. They're wonderful people with great capabilities who like we should be we should have a language and a story to allow for and inspire people to take on that work and acknowledge race's role in that history while acknowledging also like some of the problems with previous efforts like you know what i'm saying like like i want to make room for that and i worry that sometimes the debate just doesn't make enough room for that you know well i think it's actually renewing conversation around that and this is a way of us saying these weird band-aid 
discriminatory solutions that we have in place that we are gaslighting ourselves into thinking are actually helping aren't? And how do we have find better solutions to replace them? Don't think that this sort of assault on affirmative action debases that entire conversation. Well, Ravi, there's an interesting new set of statistics about division in America right now. Um, A survey of American adults that was taken in 2003, 2013, and 2023 um, on a bunch of hot-button issues that show that we are getting more and more divided Democrat versus Republican. Um, And this is from Gallup. And some of the issues that they asked about were gun laws, global warming, abortion, K-12 education, federal government power, and immigration. And on certain issues, there's just a complete like V shape of Democrats and Republicans just completely diverging from each other. And over the past two decades, in their opinions, that includes global warming. Democrats got way more concerned about it and Republicans less concerned. Abortion, Democrats got more pro-choice, Republicans more pro-life. Immigration, same sort of diversion. And then interestingly, a slightly different pattern with um, gun laws. Both sides, ultimately, over the past 20 years are are warming to the concept of gun laws, although there's still a huge difference between Democrats and Republicans or gun gun control in some form. The federal government, the the role of the federal government, super interesting. Uh, Conservatives, I think in the post- 2001 era were were more gung-ho and and more federal government power, but that has completely plummeted. Um, And then the most interesting one of all to me is the opinion on K-12, where trust in K-12 institutions has completely flipped, where conservatives used to be more trusting than, than Democrats. And now that statistic has completely inverted and Republicans are now far more distrustful. Yeah, it's fascinating now that the, you know, the, Used the word anarchist earlier, but I definitely get a tinge of that when I talk to conservatives. Who are like, you know, defund the FBI, down with the Department of Justice. You know, like um, I've had a lot of conversations with education activists who are like, basically, like let's abolish the Department of Education, which is not a, a new idea necessarily, but it's gained more steam, and you know, basically replace public schools with private ESA schools wherever possible. And there's obviously a degree to which different people want to see that happen or not. So there definitely seems to be an anti-institutional frame from the right, which have definitely picked up on this. And then I think what what inevitably happens is a a reflexive and or like related defensive institutions from the left. And COVID is obviously related to that and like the role of experts, institutions, et cetera. A lot of thoughts on that. But I think a good companion piece of this is from Max Tanny in Semaphore. He wrote this piece uh, about what he called the fragmentation election. And I think these are related. Because what he was saying was, we're entering an election now where more than ever, the candidates and the voters are going to very niche publications that have huge audiences, but there's no longer these like sort of collective experiences that we had before. The most obvious examples are the debates where it seems like by all accounts, Trump is probably not going to show up to the Republican debates and Biden is not going to show up to the Democratic debates. So those that even that collective experience is going to happen. And I wouldn't be surprised if Biden and Trump didn't even debate each other in the fall, if they're the two people on the ballot for the general election. And so that collective experience is gone. Uh, there was obviously already like a bunch of crazy stuff happened in the last election around the debates. And you show you have that, you don't have this sort of broadcast as much anymore. Fewer and fewer people are showing up to watch that. People are reading different newspapers and blogs and listening to different podcasts. And 
you know, the, and Tanny makes it, he kind of goes through like all these moments that used to be like a good example is DeSantis. Like DeSantis could have done the traditional thing, which is when we were on the Obama campaign, Obama went down to Springfield, Illinois, invited all the networks and everybody and gave a speech in Springfield and it, it beamed onto all the different channels and he did all the things. So he's going on NBC, he's going on Fox, he's going on CBS. That doesn't happen as much anymore. And what that means is we're not having, and then there's obviously a physical change. So we were, you know, we are long, long past the Tocquevillian town hall type of situation where we're rubbing elbows with people who are different from us. We're living in different neighborhoods. We're using different language. So Ricky, this is getting worse. And I think the, the answer is the Lost Debate podcast, right? I think that's the <laughs> of only course, answer to this. naturally. We're the solution to everything. Um, yeah, it's interesting that the federal government thing and, and what you were saying about the almost anarchist vibes on the right. I think that's, it's just such a marked shift that I've noticed in my own lifetime and the way that I depart from like the model of how my dad's a conservative versus how I'm a conservative. It's just very different. Like that old neocon post 9-11 Patriot Act law and order sort of conservatism is I think going to the wayside considerably for a more libertarian, more populist sort of vibe on the right for sure i think that the role of the federal government and the the conservative change on that is a really considerable one um and really radical one relative to the other issues at play in this poll but yeah i mean i think though we're going through this like growing pain period with social media where i think it's yes we're all in our own little ecospheres and stuff but that's objectively a better thing we just need to figure out how now as people that are living in this completely novel information age, we can be more responsible personally, how we can teach like news literacy to the next generation, how how we like reshuffle things post this disaggregation of information. And I think it's like, I've, I've said this before in the podcast, but it's like the post printing press era where all of a sudden a ton more people like literacy rates exploded. A ton more people could be in the conversation, gather new ideas. There were a bunch of religious wars. It was really crappy for a while. But in the end, none of us would say like, oh, that's a bad thing in the end that that happened and that more newspapers could be circulated and that more information was out there and that more weird little ideas could be proliferated and and either take off or sh- be shot down. Like I think we're in this information age where we're it's so new and so early and there's a a positive future I think but to me it's not just social media I think it's also like the two-party system and the the tension or the the way that Trump disrupted the traditional Republican framework I think like this it's just this tension of these this duopoly of competing interests that are completely opposed to each other and Trump really made the Republican Party take an unexpected turn and I think the Democrats have responded by taking a similar turn towards an extreme and the duopolies are pulling people apart more and more and more and like the Gallup analysis basically says as much um they say of these findings um this confirms the fundamental foundation for any analysis of US politics the fact that individuals political identity is highly correlated with their views of social and policy issues resulting in substantial differences in how issues are viewed across political segments like i think we're just being pulled apart by this false binary and we're looking at republicans and democrats in this poll as well too i think that's important to note there are people who don't consider themselves either. But those who subscribe to those viewpoints are being pulled apart from each other by this incentive to to 
paint the other side as evil and to tack to a more extreme version of your own ideology. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot there. One, one book I want to um, recommend to the audience along the lines of like what it used to be when there were a lot of newspapers, et cetera, that point you were making is this book called Infamous Scribblers. And it's by Eric Burns. And it's all about this sort of uh, revolutionary plus period of like all these different newspapers and how crazy things were. And like people were barbed back then. Like things got very personal. It was very interesting. And there were lots of newspapers. I agree that there, this world can be better. I'm not sure it will be. Uh, it certainly is, is in the cards. And there has to, I mean, I don't have to be is probably a strong term, but I would hope we can find ways to resurrect collective experiences. Like the defenders of, of Twitter would argue that that was a, and maybe still is, a, a place for collective experience. It just feels like a highly flawed incomplete solution to what it, you know, to the problem and, and a replacement for what was. Yeah. Because it's, it goes well beyond even media. It goes into the civic institutions that we've talked about and, and social institutions and religious institutions, whether it's church, the town hall, the town square, the diner, you know, the town, the city, the place, you know, the workplace. Like there's just, we, we have a, a real problem of fragmentation that's only getting worse. And, and as that problem of fragmentation gets worse, these numbers are going to get worse. And the, the worse these numbers get, the more dangerous I think our society can get because we're talking past each other. We're not even considering alternate opinions. And then you start to lose humanity, right? Like you start to, I would say, harbor feelings, like extreme feelings, like disgust of people who disagree with you as opposed to just mere differences of opinion. I don't know. Like, yeah. It's very depressing. I mean, I think uh, to your point, like the printing press added millions of people to the global conversation. Social media added billions of people in a much rap more rapid clip. So I think the risk of it all going downhill is far higher. But the ultimate potential, I think, is also even greater. It's just I, I hold out a little bit of hope because this stuff that I feel like a lot of the rhetoric around partisanship and rabbit holes and social media and polarization and the 24-hour news cycle and stuff that I feel like our culture is now just kind of starting to talk about in the past couple of years is all so glaringly obvious when you grow up in this digital age. Like it's like go in and try to blow a 10-year-old's mind or a 15-year-old's mind with the concept of like, we're all in our own rabbit holes. And they're like, yeah, duh, of course. Like even if they're in their rabbit holes, they understand that they're coming up in this age. These are really obvious realities to them. They've only known a world like this, but I think they know what's wrong with it. And I think that there's a, a good chance that the next generation of kids who didn't just, you know, they're not boomers that started using Facebook and getting pulled into some weird fake news meme group chat or something like there i think there's a chance that there's a next generation that has that takes ownership or at least a part a subset of it that take ownership of their their digital literacy their news literacy that become more aware because it's all really obvious to them like i i do think that that there's a chance that they can pull it together and i think that society needs to be proactive in civics education and in including without propagandizing a lot of the the dangers that come along with social media as as a news source um, and where that can take people. I do think that there's a chance that that the next generation's at the helm of saying, like, how can we use this tool to better ourselves? Well, I mean, obviously very central to the work that we do. 
Um, one thing I want to point our audience in the direction of, we wanted to spend more time on this today, but maybe in a future episode, but you can go read it for yourself. We found this really fascinating. Matt Burgess and Wired wrote this article called Criminals Creating Their Own uh, Language Learning Models. And I want to mention this because we we like to really cover AI. We haven't done like a deep AI story in, in a couple of episodes, but this is all about the criminal underworld and all about how there are these criminal networks and criminal entrepreneurs who are creating their own language learning models. And it's a really fascinating article and really well reported about basically asking the question, are these criminals defrauding each other, pretending like they're creating novel language learning models and then selling them to each other because they are criminals after all? Or are these actually real tools that we should be concerned about and he kind of comes out with a mixed answer, but essentially being like, yes, these are new tools. They are not more powerful yet than ChatGPT. And, and the names of these things are Worm G- GPT and Fraud GPT. Fraud GPT, I love. It's just so literal. <laughs> but you will have noticed, I certainly get, I don't know about uh, people listening, I get dozens of emails a day that are AI-generated emails that are solicitation emails that are not necessarily illegal. Hmm. Uh, they maybe should be. I don't know how these people get what all my information. What list are you on? I'm but not getting those. I think it's because I run a company. So there's just a lot of people who like want to sell me shit. But so they send me these AI generated things. And some of them are creepy. You'd be like, hey, we're fellow Binghamton Bearcats. But like, there's like, the first of all, I went to Binghamton, the the the, the um, mascot school, whatever it's called. It's a, is a Bearcat. Yeah. Which I think is a made up thing. Yeah. And no, but nobody from Binghamton would be like, hey, fellow Bearcats. Like, it's just not a thing people say, but that's what the thing said. It's like automatically triggers it as like an AI for me. But like what, what this article is saying is like they're training these to write very sophisticated phishing scams, et cetera. So I have gotten uh, emails from people who have worked for us before that actually aren't from them. So I got an email from uh, an employee I won't mention on air, but who used to work for us, sending me a thing saying, hey, I need help processing this something like an invoice or something. And that's creepy. It gives you a double tick. Yeah. It is very fascinating. Yeah. And so this is a real threat, but it's, but it's interesting because it's a very sober article. It's not sensationalizing. It isn't being like, Hey, like, you know, run for the Hills. It's like, Hey, like this is, this is not quite there yet, but there's, there's something to keep an eye on. So people can go listen to this Matt Burgess wired criminals creating their own language learning models. I've been getting more into wired generally lately. I, I've been, Going there, I had forgotten how good their reporting can be. They're really, really good. Okay, we've got some voicemails. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hey, guys, this is Richard, down in Maryland. Great piece on the Hunter Biden story. You both bring up good points. However, I think the right is trying to get a lot more there there than there actually is, just in the sense that, yeah, it's icky, and Hunter Biden's dealings um, reek of nepotism and things he shouldn't be doing with a foreign country like China. But the key difference between Biden and Trump's investigations are, are A, Hunter Biden, for one, is not president, and two, he's not being appointed to any important governmental or dip- diplomatic roles like Jared Kushner was. And I think because of that, there's really no equivalency as much as, you know, Republicans want there to be. And I think they're going to run into danger if they try to use that in debate against Biden, because they'll come right back with a much worse situation with Kushner receiving substantial money from very hostile forces around the world. Anyway, just my two cents. 
Thank you. I definitely agree that there's an important nuance and to be drawn about the fact that Hunter is not a public official. I think the point of concern that I have is not about like, like I don't really care about his own personal life derailing and stuff. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that in like a callous way, but like, it's just not relevant to me. He's not a politician. If it was, you know, Joe Biden, who was using drugs and with hookers, then that's a different story, but it's, it's separate. Or if it was Kushner doing that, that would be in the public interest. He's not a, a publicly elected official. I agree. The concern that I have is the very obvious potential that is just inescapable that his father was making important policy decisions, particularly as vice president in countries in which his son had financial interests. And that's something that I think there's a there's a potential for enormous corruption there. You know, I, I don't think it's yet been 100% proven or maybe it never will be. But the like in the same way that it, it's like a politician regulating a company that they're trading a stock in and not really putting it out there or like regulating a company that their spouse is trading a stock in and and keeping that secret or saying, oh, I just don't talk to my my husband about the stocks that we own. And there, I think there's a really large chance it's either... Biden completely failed to disclose and stop something that very obviously opened him up to corruption concerns, or he completely failed as a parent to even just understand where the heck all the money that his son has is coming from. And that's what concerns me. There's an enormous corruption potential in that relationship. So I think like two things. One is I agree with the listener about Jared being different. Uh, he he not only was a senior advisor in the White House, but had the Middle East portfolio, uh, which is relevant, because then he went on to raise money from the Saudis directly. You know, he he's ostensibly directly working with them in government. And there's a lot of questions that could be raised about that. Obviously, he was also the in charge at various points of the 2020 reelection campaign. So he's different. He's a, he's a public official. He was in government, uh, and could potentially again go into government. So I do think he was different. I think on the on the question of Biden's responsibility, I think it's a lot to say he failed as a parent because this is an adult. He does, it's not Joe Biden's responsibility to know what his son is doing at all times I or think where it's, his money if comes my, from. If my derailing child is making a gazillion dollars out of nowhere, it's my responsibility to... And, and I find out that he's on the board of Ukrainian energy companies with absolutely no qualifications at all whatsoever. It's within my interest. And I'm the vice president who's overseeing well, policies in but I think Ukraine. A, yeah, but I think it's a little different to, to say, like, because what you said is it's his parents' responsibility. As a parent, it's his responsibility is what you said to know where the money's coming from. Now, as a politician, my indictment of him is very different. Which is, I, I had, I have believed all along that uh, when you're running for president and you're, you know, or you're vice president, you're such a public official, you have to rein in the people around you or explicitly repudiate them, and that has not happened. It, it is, it, it's understandable to me why it doesn't happen. It's your child. I just think that you owe it to the American people to be clearer than Biden has been. Uh, and as I mentioned, I think that's that's kind of where. The, the extent of my frustration with Biden uh, is on this one, but interesting call. Uh, here's another call uh, on an, a different segment that we did in the last episode. Morning, Ricky and Ravi. I love the last debate. Uh, I wanted to opine on the porn camp issue. So full disclosure, I'm a member of the Mormon faith, also known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I grew up in Utah. I don't live there now, but um, I think I'll defend the, the camps a little bit. 
Um, there are certainly some things that I don't like about the story, and it was, was eye-opening in many ways. But if you accept that pornography is bad, which, it, it, Ricky, I know has come in quite a bit on that, and it's an addiction and it's hard <laughs> to avoid, then what other solution is there? Uh, drastic times call for drastic measures because of how omnipresent pornography is. Really, your only option is to go out in the middle of the desert because anything else is, is not going to work when you can get it on a phone and you can figure out how to do it all the time. You know, I had a, a friend growing up who was a wilderness survival counselor for troubled teens. It was not pornography-related. It was just kids with behavioral challenges. But these camps, in some ways, there's certainly some things that go too far, but they seem to work. And I think some some of the things with the lens of uh, this is a tough camp in the wilderness make a lot more sense. For example, it sounds creepy when, when you think about it to put a uh, an alarm on somebody's sleeping bag. Well, guess what? You're in the middle of the wilderness. You can't have people running away. Uh, my friend who was a counselor told me about that. If, if you have somebody who just runs out away in the middle, get eaten by cougars. So you kind of have to make sure that they don't run away, right? And then the original person in the story who was a man in his teens, a, a boy in his teens who, uh, who was struggling with homosexuality, which obviously you have a right to be homosexual, etc. But I think you missed buried the lead, which is he was having sex with his father's coworker who was in his 30s. That is rape. And maybe it sounds okay because it's a young man with an adult man, but if my 15-year-old daughter was having sex with a, a, a man in his mid-30s who was a coworker, I probably wouldn't let her out of her room either. So I, I don't want to bury that part of the story, which is, you know, drastic times call for drastic measures. And if you really think this is a big issue, I don't think you can abuse people, but you got to take away phones. you got to put people where it's not easy to access. And you may have to do some things like make sure they don't run off in the middle of the wilderness. So thanks. Yeah, I would say I, I completely agree that there are probably camps where this is totally appropriate. I also I'm writing I'm working on an article right now about a similar kind of camp for kids with video game addiction. Like that's I don't take exception to the concept of a camp period. I think there's some allegations about this camp particularly that are that are concerning to me in the way that it's operated. Um, I also think there's probably a way to divide out like kids with genuine sexual like predatory issues and kids with porn addiction, which I think is a, a failure of the camp to separate kids in those camps because I think, you know, sending a kid who's addicted to porn out into the wilderness with kids that are potentially dangerous to them is is a totally different ballpark. I also agree on the front that there's an, an enormous buried lead in the sense that this kid, there's something deeply troubling and wrong beyond just his sexuality that his parents were responding to. I don't think sending him somewhere with potentially predatory people is a solution to that though, necessarily. Like I think that needed to have a legal remedy, but I do agree that there's, I there's probably camps that are very well operated that are not veering into the territory that I think this camp does in some, in some places. And I think that, yeah, I, I shared these sentences. Like, I, that's those are all very, very wise points, and I completely agree. Yeah, I, I just want to say it's cool that I, mean, I love the diversity of our listeners, like geographically experienced, et cetera. And, and thank you for this call. I, I I think you make some really fascinating and and some some valid points. I agree with Ricky that in the end, I have major questions about this particular camp. Uh, the entire concept is not one that I like am super jazzed about, but I don't. It's not insane to me that that if you do like believe 
that this is a, a real threat to your children, which is not a crazy proposition. I don't want to like downplay it. Then like these super abstemious camps and and this type of solution is not a, a totally wild idea, right? Like if you were to yeah. replace porn addiction with another addiction, it wouldn't sound crazy. We could have debates about what's the most effective approach, but it's not it's not a crazy idea. So thank you for that voicemail. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Our voicemail is 321 That's 321 We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>